0: welcome to the georgia fintech academy podcast the georgia
1: fintech academy is a collaboration between georgia's fintech industry and the university system of georgia
0: this talent development initiative addresses a massive demand for fintech professionals and gives learners the specialized education experiences needed to enter the fintech sector
2: hello everybody this is tommy marshall the executive director of the georgia fintech academy Welcome back to listeners that have been with us on our previous nine episodes, and we are really excited to have you all with us today. Uh, I have two guests with me today, Jason Jones from Cressa and Tiffany Din, a student from or a, a recently graduated student from Georgia State University's Robin School of Business. Uh, welcome to you both. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Let's jump right in with uh, getting to know each of you a little bit better. Um, Jason, tell tell us about you. Tell us about you and tell us about Cressa
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, well, I'm a principal at Cressa, which is the world's largest occupier-only corporate real estate advisory firm, which is a mouthful. However, what that means is that uh, we advise corporate corporations across the globe on their real estate strategy and we only offer that sort of advice and advocacy for the occupier of space, never the landlord, and we feel that avoids any potential conflicts of interest. Um, I have been with the firm for 17 years and I always share with folks that I'm a bit of an odd duck, Tommy, in the corporate real estate industry. And um, that is because I personally, I really don't do um, real estate advisory work exclusively anymore. I focus on a service line that I built uh, called Cressa C3, which stands for communications, connectivity, and cloud. And these are the technology components that support a workforce and ultimately integrate with the corporate real estate process. So it's a bit of a different twist, and what we saw was that our clients were not being served by the industry. As we thought that they could or as well as they could be and we just extended our service one level further um, beyond the real estate advisory work beyond the project management work and into what comes next which is the technology to support the workspace to support the workforce and really circling back to the very beginning it's those conversations that oftentimes and we'll get into it are upstream conversations that lead to downstream real estate infrastructure and support. So that's Cressa and my role there. Um,
2: now, tell us, how did you get interested in um, in what you do in real estate?
1: Well, um, a little bit of an unusual path, but uh, just sort of a little bit of background about me is I am an Atlanta native. I uh, I went to uh, I left local public DeKalb County um, school high school here and went to Duke for my undergraduate degree, where uh, I did Navy ROTC. So I spent eight years flying uh, jets off the aircraft carriers.
2: Fantastic! Uh, we had the blue we had the Blue Angels flying over our fine city just the other day, as we like to say, the sounds of freedom. Tommy. my favorite. I yeah. only I'm very Navy biased, so I don't watch the Thunderbirds. I only. <laughs> well, they, they
1: it's been said um, Air Force wings are made of lead Navy wings made of gold. But, but you didn't hear me say that. Um, no, it's a good, healthy rivalry. And I love my Air Force brethren and uh, my sisters and brothers in the Air Force and uh, Army and Marine Corps, for that matter. But yeah. Um, so anyways, I, uh, I spent eight years and uh, got an MBA at Arizona State and on my way out of the Navy, but then circled back home to Atlanta after a trip around the world over 15 months, um, but eventually landed here at home. And then I say I started in the more dangerous world of uh, office tenant rep advisory services and uh planted the flag and i've been back and i love my being back here in atlanta yeah that's cool so, that's but, but, the, but your question was how did i get interested in ultimately i uh it was a This was right after 9-11. It was a very difficult time in the economy for everyone. And um, I was just attracted to the uh, sort of the entrepreneurial nature of real estate advisory services. It's very much a people business. It's um, you can sort of make your own. You're almost like a business inside of a business. Uh, Really, that's how real estate advisory work works. And I was attracted to that. So um, I began my career with a very uh, large, publicly traded, uh, traditional real estate firm, and but then moved to Cressa, where I am now, about one year later, and I've been there ever since. And it has been a great experience.
2: Yeah, that's uh, yeah, fantastic. Well, thanks again for being with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Tiffany, you are a rock star. And... Tell us about you. It's just great to have you on with us today.
0: Oh, uh, Firstly, thank you, Tommy, as well as Jason, for having me here today. Mm, I am a senior. I just graduated from Georgia State. I majored...
2: Congratulations.
0: Thank you. Right. So I majored in finance and computer information systems with a concentration in data analytics. So my interest in computer information systems actually started when I first realized that there are a lot of um A lot of opportunities within finance that requires tech skills. So when I first did my first internship in my sophomore year, I realized that, um, you know, if I have some knowledge in SQL or VBA, et cetera, that would definitely give me an edge, you know, in my internship. And that got me started. I took on my second major after that summer, which is in CIS. And then I just went down the rabbit hole. And then you know, went into the intersection between both of my majors, try to identify what the synergies are. And FinTech was a natural progression of that. So um, I've really had the privilege of being a part of the FinTech Academy that Tommy is leading right now. We just recently had a really amazing career fair with um, a lot of students. I think it was 400 students, That's right?
2: right. Yeah, 400. Yeah.
0: was really successful. And then we had... I think around 10 employers, right? We had- That's
2: right, we had 10 employers.
0: <laughs> yeah, who came on. And I thought that was an amazing opportunity for students like me who was interested in FinTech to get engaged and learn more about this field. So, yeah.
2: And you're- um... I know you're being modest too, so I'm gonna just brag about you a little bit. Number one, you stood up immediately when I was asking folks to get involved with our student advisory council that we just set up in January. So thank you for that, and I'm, I certainly hope you'll. We can find a way to keep you in the mix as uh, even at knowing that you graduated. Uh, and then I know you were uh, made the president's list, the dean's list. Um, have been part of the Women Lead Signature Program, Honors Track and Finance, uh, the Panthers on Wall Street program, which is just phenomenal, and many and many other things. So I know Georgia State Robinson is going to be sad to see you go.
0: <laughs> oh, thank you, Tommy. It's really the school, you know, and the teachers who has given me all these opportunities to grow. So I'm really grateful for that.
2: Mm-hmm. And then. Um, I think the other thing that's um, just really interesting about you is that you're an international student, um, kind of grew up in Singapore. Um, What what got you interested in Georgia State? I've just been curious about that.
0: So um, before I um, applied to the schools, firstly, I came to Georgia because I had relatives here. So my parents feel a lot safer for me to come over to the US and specifically Georgia, Atlanta. I was really interested in Georgia State because when I was researching into the different schools in the vicinity, I realized that Georgia State has a lot of um, really good programs. Like the Penthouse on Wall Street program was what really stood out to me. The signature programs, the pace, experience where we get to be consultants
2: right (laughs)
0: student consultants um yeah that really stood out to me as well as well as the fact that georgia state actually has um one of the best teaching experiences i think it was ranked second along with you know the school with best innovation so i feel like this is an environment which truly you know advocates for um quality teaching and that's something that really attracted me and made me decide to come to georgia state
2: Yeah, and what and I was also really interested um, as you are a double major between finance and computer information systems. What was it that drew you towards um, doing the dual major and and I guess kind of adding on that computer information systems focus?
0: Mm -hmm. So um, initially, as I probably mentioned earlier, I was actually a finance major only. Mm -hmm. And then when I started doing my internships, every internship that I did, I realized that I feel that my skill sets weren't sufficient. You know, every job nowadays requires some form of tech skills, you know, be um, VBA at the minimum or SQL.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Right? I think those two are the ones that I commonly see very often. As well as, you know, if you have skill sets in Python, you know. And just having experience dealing with coding or technology, that's something that I thought would be very advantageous. And that's something that a finance major, a traditional finance degree does not provide. So after I finished my first um, internship, I came back and I was thinking if I really wanna get employed you know, in the future, I need to think about how I can value add to my current major. So I decided on taking on the CIS major to, you know, learn some coding. You know, Python, R, Java, to boost my um, value add.
2: Yeah, I mean, you are the kind of you are fintech. You kind <laughs> of, a bit of you epitomize fintech in the fact that you've got this major in both finance and computer information systems. And I will mention to those of you uh, looking for a really superstar employee that you're still exploring opportunities, right?
0: Yeah. (laughs) Shout out, Tommy.
2: (laughs) So... um, you know, please, uh, if any of you are listening and you want me to get you connected with Tiffany, uh, yeah, just shoot me an email at tommy.marshall at and we will make that happen. Um, let's get into a bit of a discussion around um, uh, this uh, kind of really cool space that you work in, Jason. Um, and I think, I guess, first of all, for our listeners, yes, this is a fintech podcast, um, and I hope you've all been listening uh, to uh, to uh, the multiple podcasts that we've um, we've put out there just in the last um, two and a half months. So you may be asking, you know, okay, what what are we doing? Talking about um, what? Talking about real estate and getting into real estate. Well, um, I've I've learned. In my engagement with the FinTech ecosystem just here in Atlanta over the last 10 years, that um, uh, re, you know, real estate really becomes an important strategic um, uh, aspect of how these companies um, uh, work, how they grow, how they begin to thrive. I know you're gonna hit on some of this, Jason. Um, and so it just seemed like a really appropriate time to have someone with your expertise um, on our podcast, Jason, that just as we're all trying to figure out this really, um, really unique circumstance we find ourselves in, kind of hopefully soon transitioning or in the midst of transitioning from this work from home setting um, in, in back back to the workplace, and what what might that look like, and how could that occur? Uh, but maybe for, start us out, Jason, telling us about just fintech occupancy here in Georgia, I guess, and particularly in Atlanta.
1: Sure. Yeah, no. And and you're right, Tommy. Um, it, it, what's We're all experiencing a shock to the system on where we work and how we work, and that includes the entire fintech community. Um, and there's going to be a discussion that's going on right now about how do we return to work? And what does it look like? Is it going to be a return to normal or what is the new normal? So it is absolutely relevant to how a fintech company um, is going to operate going forward. And um, it's interesting, the fintech community has definitely grown. Um, the statistics that, uh, that we have uncovered uh, defined by the um, uh, Atlanta Business Chronicle was since 2014, the uh, percentage of space that fintech companies occupy has grown by about 12.5%. So over five years, that occupied space has grown 12.5%, and it's about 9% of the office space out there. So uh, pretty healthy proportion for uh, one industry in our uh, environment here in Atlanta.
2: Um. Yeah. And I, uh, yeah, it's just, it's been a pretty amazing story. I I was just, we all, I guess, certainly I've had a sense of just how much growth there's been in, in fintech in our, in our community. And um, you start to look at these real estate occupancy numbers and um, really you can sort of just see another indicator of, um, yeah. of, of how that growth's been um, emanating itself. So help us with this um, kind of big topic. I know you're spending a lot of time consulting your clients around now um, in these transition and how to handle what might be our our kind of a new circumstance for work. um, Sure. the as we come through this public health crisis.
1: Well, there's a, you know, Tommy, the way that we view things are in three phases. So um, to, to the health crisis, the phase one was the immediate phase. And that was the system shock. That was um, stay-at-home orders or mandates. And uh, everybody sent their employee base home. And we had to figure it out overnight. And the companies raced to catch up with their employees, you know, using cell phones, home internet, et cetera, and trying to support them. Phase two is really sort of the um Enduring phase, which we're in right now, but we feel we're coming to the end of. And that's the transition that's about to happen to return to work. Um, and then phase three, which I think is the really interesting opportunity phase, which will be how do companies take advantage of what they learned and this new normal and what is it? Um, but backing up to phase two, right now, the conversations that we're taking part in and where we're advising our clients and what we're going through ourselves is all around how do we safely return to the work environment and what does that look like and the considerations for that are well first we advise three things one create a team to help come up with a plan two develop the plan, and then three, communicate the plan. Those three things are critical. You need to have a group of people who are focused on this, really dedicated to figuring it out, create the plan, and then good communication is critical because people need to feel safe. They need to feel valued as they're coming back to the workplace. Mm -hmm. And some of the key elements of that plan would be figuring out how you're going to social distance inside the workplace, and we have designers that work for us on staff that can that help people, help companies lay that out. Um, traffic patterns, sort of the flow of walking through the space because you want to try to minimize congested areas or you know, sort of bumping into each other in the hall as much as possible. Um, setting up sanitation stations. there may be um, you could come up with policy for, where you wear a mask or if you're in your private office, perhaps you don't need to wear your mask. There are furniture options out there for putting in uh, shields in between employees who are sitting close to each other in sort of open uh, workstation or benching areas. So, you know, it, there's a there's a whole host of a, sort of a checklist that uh, companies are now going through and we are helping our clients uh, evaluate and ultimately get them back into the space on the time frame and the, the people that they need coming back, um, you know, in an appropriate and safe manner.
2: Does, does some of those strategies involve some sort of rotation where you're not bringing everyone, or maybe Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you got team A and D, and you know Tuesday, Thursday, you got teams C and D, you know, something like that.
1: Yes, yes, that those those sort of shifts um, are you know it's a combination of shifts, like you said, and also phases so you know phase one might be you're going to have two shifts and it's all X number of people in the office at any one time Phase two might be you increase the number of people uh, increase the number of shifts or you move away from shifts whatever that uh, process might be but that is that's certainly part of it but I tell you the first question is who really needs to come back right now and that, I think, leads to some of the interesting questions that companies are asking themselves um, about the the new normal.
0: I have a
2: Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I'm
0: sorry. So I have a question, Jason. So do you think there's going to be a change in how companies will be thinking about traditional office spaces now that, you know, we have this is an acid test, right? The pandemic where uh, companies get the opportunity to test out their technology infrastructure and um, their capabilities at this point. And I feel like a lot of companies have already proven themselves that their technology infrastructure has the capacity to, you know, move remote. So how is that, you know, what's your take on that? Do you think that companies would start thinking about maybe moving to a smaller office space or to more like collaborative spaces? How do you see the trend going forward?
1: Well, I think that is a great question, Tiffany, and it's very insightful because that is exactly what companies are thinking of and should be thinking of is, and I love how you said, "Hey, look, this is the acid test." And it was, an, it was interesting. It was an imposed acid test. There was a cultural barrier to remote work. Prior to the health crisis, not everybody. Some companies embraced it. That's true, but it was a smaller percentage. The t- statistics that I've seen was only f- 46% of companies had a remote work plan or policy in place. And of those, how many really exercised it and used it? Even if it was at a, you know, they used it all the time, that's still, you know, 54% that had no remote work policy at all. And now suddenly, it's 100% have something out there. And and that's what's interesting is, companies should be asking themselves, how do we take advantage of the smashing of the cultural barrier of, uh, against remote work? And how can it make us more competitive? And it, it, if I may, the, the way that we view this is, um, there's an old paradigm and a new paradigm of office space, of the workplace, I should say. And that is um, sort of the past, the old paradigm was built on four key elements of a successful workplace. Talent, culture, technology, and the physical space. You built a workplace that attracted and retained the best talent, that stimulated, had a culture that stimulated creativity, that leveraged technology to facilitate collaboration, and a design, a floor plan that would increase productivity. It's number four that has been blown out of the water right now and a a new idea has erupted as you have alluded to. And that's really what we consider Workplace 2.0, which says it's not just about the physical office space and what that looks like. It's still that, but now there's an and, and where do we, office, our people, where can they work from no matter where it is, home, office, a coffee shop, a, uh, a their commute on the train, uh, a public park? Where can they office or really work? Where's that workplace that maximizes productivity, talent, and financial return? And that's where I think there's a real exciting opportunity for uh, companies going forward in this new paradigm. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, um, Jason, one thing I was remembering, I remember when there was this transformation in terms of the physical, the the office space, from these like most of the uh, employees or staff having their own individual offices or kind of high-walled cubicles to this transformation, which was more this open office plan or, what I call more bullpen, like you'd have more staff kind of sitting at kind of these big open spaces, um, which maybe started occurring even uh, 10 years or more ago. But mm-hmm. where, I mean, I assume, I, I recall there was a lot of argument around that productivity, culture enhancement, whatnot, and changing those physical setups. But I, what I was curious about was, you know, did did that, did you see that realized? Were those changes that were made? Um, over the last, whatever it's been, 10 or 15 years, kind of, did it, did it realize, did companies realize the benefits they were hoping for for those changes? And is, what can we learn from that that helps inform this new new go forward?
1: Yeah, and I think you're speaking of sort of the, the densification that was associated with the open floor plan. Is that what you're referring to? Or, or is now it was just open workstations and fewer offices? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, what you, so that saves a lot of money. So let's not forget that real estate is typically the second largest line item on a P and L, right after labor. So your people cost the most. That's the most important. But right under it is your uh, is your your corporate real estate holdings. Typically an office lease or a warehouse lease. Right. And when you are able to um, take people out of hardwalled offices and put them into workstations, a couple different things happen. One is. Perhaps that's a design function for greater mobility of your workforce inside the space and greater collaboration. So there's some soft reasons why you would do that, but there's also hard financial reasons why you do that. Because just to give you very um, back in the napkin math, if one person occupies 200 square feet, and that includes the circulation areas where they walk and their workstation, et cetera, It's somewhere between 150 and 250 square feet per person. That's a rule of thumb in our industry. So I'm just going to use 200 as a round number. If you multiply that times the cost per square foot, in Atlanta, let's take the King and Queen buildings, which most people are familiar with that concourse. Those mid-ride buildings are approximately $30 per square foot. So 200 times 30 equals $6,000. So For every employee that you can now have working remote, or if you just, you reduce your square footage that you need by densifying, as you said, with open work plans, you save $6,000 for every 200 square feet each year. That can add up. Multiply that by... Ten, you're right. up to sixty thousand by a hundred. There's six hundred. I mean, it it adds big, up. Big, big
2: cost advantage in going to that kind of arrangement, and then, but then I guess now the flip side is on that we've got this public health concern. That uh, I mean, obviously more open space, more interaction. You know what not to be. That,
1: that, that's true, um, but I I think what we're going to see it's going to be very interesting because. We now have people, as I mentioned, the cultural barrier has been broken and the sort of the genie is out of the bottle. What I'm hearing from my clients as they're talking to their workforce is they're getting a little bit of pushback on coming back to work, not only for, in the immediate term, healthcare concerns, but also for commute times, productivity reasons right. mm-hmm. i yeah. mean there's a they have a greater work life balance believe it or not you can if you if you uh, if you have a place to work and that's part of the consideration a dedicated place to work at home so there's some pushback from employees some not all some are dying to get back but i think there's going to be an era where we are looking like a economic downturn i believe our Financial officers are going to be looking for cost control and if they have an opportunity to reduce their square footage and still operate effectively, productively by having a remote work strategy, I believe you're going to see that happen. Right.
0: Mm -hmm. So, Jason, I have another question. So, even though remote work strategies are definitely very enticing for especially financial officers who are trying to cut costs, at the same time, there is immense value in having, you know, a common space that employees can go to. You know, that's where the synergy happens, collaboration and innovation happens. So, what are your thoughts about, you know, we work for example, those type of like hybrid models, collaborative spaces, you know, with technological infrastructure. What are your thoughts about, you know, that trend?
1: Sure. Well, I I absolutely feel that a a centralized office For most companies is something that is going to continue to be critical for their success. You can't beat in person collaboration. The question is simply going to be okay which job types need that type of in person collaboration and how often because if they only need it one or two days per week, or maybe they only need it uh, in the morning and not the afternoon. I mean, there's any number of different scenarios, then, you know, the key is, and it all goes back to business drivers, right, that drive this whole thing. It's really not about remote work or uh, our office space. It's about what does my fintech company need to be successful? Where do I put them, my people? How do they collaborate with each other? Can they collaborate virtually? How often do they need to collaborate? What's best for them collaborating in person? It's looking at the operations, the human resources, attracting and retaining talent, and it's looking at the financial return. And it's that combination that then leads downstream to the appropriate strategy.
2: That's super helpful, Jason. And it's just really interesting. And I think it's important to be, um, I just learned so much um, in talking about these topics and it helps to emphasize just how um, important these real estate related strategies are to the success uh, of a business. Um, I want to pivot a bit to, um, you know, news, fintech news over the past week uh, that have caught our respective eyes. Tiffany, how about you? Any any news that's jumped out at you um, since last Thursday?
0: Yeah, definitely. Tommy, did you see the news about um, FIS? I think it just came out last week. Um, FIS, they're targeting um, to invest 100, $115 million over the next three years in some promising fintech startups and I think that's really interesting. What do you think about it?
2: Yeah, I, I saw that and was uh, excited to um, to see that move. You know, I've um, FIS is a, a great uh, partner for the Fintech Academy. They're our, our founding investor actually of our program. And um, Asif Ramji is a uh, serial entrepreneur, successful, uh, successful. i uh, very successful entrepreneur here in Atlanta, and he is um, his most recent company was Paymetric. He sold that to WorldPay. Now WorldPay was acquired by FIS. So Asif now finds himself as the chief revenue or chief growth officer, chief growth officer at FIS, and he is the one that uh, has helped establish this uh, venture fund, and um, it's just going to build on some really interesting efforts that FIS has been driving really, I think, over the last six or seven years. And they've had um, a a fintech accelerator that they've run in collaboration with the Venture Center in Little Rock. Um, As an example, of course, this I'm sure this um, fintech venture fund is going to help provide some funding to select companies in that program. Um, and they're involved in other accelerator programs that that nature, and then they've also been a prolific acquirer of fintech companies, um, early stage, mid stage, over the years. So it just makes total sense to me um, this uh, this venture fund that they're creating. Um, Jason, how about you? What's caught your eye?
1: Well, I I, I saw this news and I was uh, I was amazed, and it really speaks to. Um, the the, the payments industry, I I saw that um, PayPal had a a bigger day, May 1st, than it had, the most transactions in the company's history, bigger than even Black Friday or Cyber Monday of 2019. And uh, I was just, uh, you know, in a record-breaking month, they've added 10 million net new accounts, I'm just—I haven't had a chance to really think about it deeply, but that surprises me. Um, and I'm just curious if you, anybody has thoughts on why is PayPal, and I'm sure Venmo's doing well also. Um, how how is this happening, or what is the driver behind that,
2: Tiffany? I guess this this always brings up my favorite question: Is that you? Are you a Venmo user, a PayPal user? both zelle
0: yes.
2: <laughs> apple pay what what's your preferred way to pay for pay for things
0: definitely zelle as well as venmo i use venmo almost like every time when i go out you know hang out with friends because that's such a convenient way to pay you know in you know split payments you know so I feel like especially with what's going on right now with the pandemic, it feels natural almost that um, there is an increase in contactless payments because, you know, um, for example, a lot of us nowadays would be ordering in instead of eating out, you know, and then we'll be, you know, using our Venmos to pay for um, those different deliveries and stuff. So...
2: Yeah, and Venmo, um, for those that aren't aware, is part of PayPal. PayPal owns Venmo. Um, I don't. I didn't look closely at the news to whether those transaction numbers from Venmo um, and the active account numbers were inclusive um, right. between PayPal and Venmo. I'm going to assume they are because they're so dramatic. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that it's just. I think it's just another just a really remarkable data point showing how this public health crisis has accelerated the adoption of digital everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, And of course, FinTech and FinTech companies like PayPal um, are huge beneficiaries of uh, these behavior changes that we're just seeing happen real time rapidly. Um, my anecdote, I like Venmo too, and um, I, our, our family anecdote around this uh, over the last couple of months has been my kid's uh, piano teacher have been asking us to pay him in paper checks for the last, whatever it's been, year that he's been instructing our kids. Which drives me crazy. I just like I want. I would you know definitely. That's my last uh, in you know preference in terms of payment instruments. And so um, we finally have got him taking payment now by Venmo, as of uh, the start of this um, this crisis. That's great. But those are yeah. I think you know I think good good week of news overall in fintech. There were a couple other standouts, uh, Stash, um, which is a kind of cool savings uh, fintech, they did a Series F raise of a $112 million lending tree up in Charlotte, uh, took a lead role on that. And, um, and then Google continues to make a lot of news in terms of supporting the, um, the payment protection program as it rolls out um, and supporting banks with the, with their technology. Well, it's uh, amazingly, we've come to the, the end of our time. Um, just thanks to you both for uh, your, your thoughts. Um, Jason, thanks for helping us think a bit more deeply about what uh, what's happening and how the changes are occurring um, in the real estate space. And then Tiffany, wish you all the luck I can muster as you uh, begin to take your first steps into what I know is going to be an amazingly successful
1: Yes. Well, thank you for having us on. And, and also, I, I second what Tommy says. Congratulations, Tony. You have had a, a stellar career there, so to speak, at, uh, at school. So best of luck to you. Somebody's going to be really lucky to have you hired.
0: Thank you so much, both. Thank you for this opportunity. The Georgia FinTech Academy podcasts are available on iTunes and Spotify. To obtain additional information about the Georgia FinTech Academy, please visit our website at georgiafintechacademy.org.